Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. The Voice of Insurance podcast was very much made with guests like Richard Brindle in mind. A lot of people talk about being independent, but very few live it in the way that today's guest has done. And by that I mean independence of mind, thought and action, sometimes including independence from your reinsurers. Mr Brindle has always spoken his mind, but he has also backed up his strong opinions with equally strong conviction and financial support for his views. Today's market was made for underwriters like him, willing to do deals while others aren't sure, and able to move quickly and give meaningful support to clients willing to trade on his terms. And now that Fidelis MGU is formally separated from its balance sheet, Richard is even more energised and intensely focused on the world's underwriting opportunities than at probably any time since his early days in Lloyd's. So, we have the ideal guests, in an ideal situation, in a fascinating market, in a real world that is presenting unique challenges almost daily. The result is one of the best podcast interviews The Voice of Insurance has managed so far. There's no need to list out everything we talk about, because it's all here. We recorded this down in Monaco on September the 10th. We often moan about the reinsurance rendezvous in Monte Carlo and wonder whether it's still relevant in the 21st century. But when it throws up opportunities to spend valuable time with some of its most singular industry leaders, it becomes obvious that it's easily worth the effort. If we didn't have a world forum like this, we would surely have to reinvent it. But if we needed to reinvent another Mr Brindle, I'm not quite sure we could. Listen on to see what I mean. Enjoy the podcast. Richard, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. This time last year, you were telling us all about the separation between Fidelis MGU and Fidelis Balance Sheet. You've done all that. The balance sheet is now floated on the stock exchange. So you've spent a lot of time doing that. What's been the peace dividend, the bonus for you? Because the rationale for you was that you could spend more time being an underwriter. So the rationale is exactly that. To free me and my colleagues up to do more of what we do best. I've talked before about the perverse outcome in our industry, where the better you are at something in your 20s and 30s, the less you do of it in your 40s and above. And Project Cooper, as we called it, the bifurcation of the Fidelis Group was all about freeing me up and my colleagues to do what we do best. So a really good example is last week where the kickoff sessions were held with the various lines of business for our 2024 budget. Now, previously, I just didn't have time to attend those meetings. Now I do. And we drilled down on every line of business into things like signing ratios, renewal retention ratios, new business flows, not taken up stats. If I'm using too much jargon here, let me know. You didn't say NTU, so that's good. Yeah, just really slicing and dicing everything we do, talking about the outwards that we purchase on each line, the relationships, which brokers we should use, that really granular look at underwriting. And I've never been in those meetings before, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet too much here, but it was very valuable to the group that not only me, but Richard Coulson, who's never had time to be in those meetings before, were both in every meeting. We've come away with an armful of action points. You know we like action points at Fidelis, and we're going to turn those into money. So it's about monetizing the, I think, fantastic footprint that we built over the last eight years. And those line underwriters are going to get much more of you. Obviously, you're in on these meetings. They're going to learn what you think about this. Yeah. So just to give you a flavor of an average day for me, I'll kick it off with a meeting with Richard Coulson, then I'll meet my deputies, and then we'll have the first UMCC underwriting call. What's UMCC? Underwriting and Marketing Conference call. I think I've got that right. And we'll have the first one of those at 9.30 in the morning. That probably normally runs for about 45 minutes. Then I'll have a meeting of my mini Exco in a circle group. And then by about 11, I've done all that, and I'm sitting at my desk on the floor. And I'm there basically for the balance of the day. 
we have a second underwriting call at 4.15 in the afternoon and then various end of the day meetings after that. But for those core hours, you might call them the old fashioned Lloyd's box hours. I'm sitting there and I will have a sometimes sporadic approaches, sometimes literally a queue of my colleagues waiting to speak to me with risks that have come in. And one of the things we do is we do what we call sniff tests. So I'm very hot on service and on quick replies to brokers. I'm very critical of the lethargy that's in our industry that's only intensified since COVID. A lot of our peers aren't even in the office you know, very much at all these days, which I think is ridiculous in a person-to-person business. So I'm very keen on the rapid response times, and the sniff test serves that purpose. You know, an underwriter will come to me and say, is this an appetite, Richard? And I'll say, sometimes I'll just say no, but sometimes I'll say yes, but, 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 get the following information. And it enables us to get straight back to the broker, not waste their time, put an indicative line into the mix so we protect our own participation on the risk rather than seeing it at the last minute and potentially signing down. And none of this stuff was I able to do before. So it's terrifically liberating and everything I hoped it would be. You're also training those line underwriters as well. Well, absolutely. And I think, uh, again, back to my COVID point, you can't learn the trade from your living room in Clapham. You just can't. But equally, how much do you learn in a company where you see the C-suite once a year for some sort of drinks reception? We just have a very flat structure. None of us have offices. We're available all the time. I truly believe it is a unique training ground for young underwriters. And our underwriters are young. And we make no apology for that, Mark. We have the option of employing a bunch of people my age who've been around a very long time, very highly paid. Some of them are great. Others, frankly, perhaps working from home these days, not with the hunger, with the drive that I have myself and that I expect from my colleagues. So we have a predilection towards bringing up youth. I got my first chance when I was 26, when I became the principal underwriter of the biggest syndicate in Lloyd's. I mean, that wasn't a thing in those days. In fact, it's not a thing these days. But I got it because I worked damned hard. And as I've always said, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And I want to extend that opportunity to my colleagues. And it's wonderful to see a whole bunch of people in their 30s, and actually a lot of them in their 20s, who now are heads of lines of business, who are very high profile with brokers, who are traveling to visit clients, well known now to the broking community. I'm very proud of that. But obviously, I suppose they're cheaper when they start, but they can still get the rewards pretty quickly, I presume. You know, it's always- yeah, they're not all particularly cheap now. <laughs> That's the trouble. Yes, yeah, so, well, yeah, but obviously, yeah, you employ sharp people, and then you, you realise, yes, yeah, so at their age, they're earning at least five times what you were, but there you are, never mind. But I think this is progress. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm very keen of our diversity. I think we are one of the most diverse companies in the industry. And we don't promote, if you like, for the sake of diversity, but we embrace diversity, and most of our new underwriters who are gaining a lot of profile with brokers and clients now are women. And we are ethnically very diverse and we have some very tangible and ambitious goals to deepen that diversity at every level of the company. And by the middle of this decade, we're going to look very different. Do you find that you know, when you're having that sniff test, you say no, and do they start coming back at you with five reasons why you should say yes? Yes. Do you change your mind? <laughs> I do sometimes. But I do have, and I think my colleagues will recognize this, a unique reservoir of knowledge and experience. Because the thing about my career is, you know, these days people tend to specialize quite early in their careers. I never did that. With John Charman and I, with Syndicate 2488, we did everything. Everything, you know, from all the specialty lines, bespoke lines. And then, of course, we got into Property Cat after Hurricane Andrew. And then, you know, so I've been pretty big in reinsurance for 30 years now as well. So I do have that reservoir of knowledge. And I think my colleagues are 
grateful to be able to tap into it, but I haven't got all the answers, that's for sure. You've got that memory of losses that were very unexpected at the time, which actually people have forgotten about. Absolutely. I mean, there was a case back in the, I think it was the 90s, it was a marine claim, and it revolved around the slip said, in terms of the period, it said 12 months at DTBA. <laughs> and the case was, what does the A mean? Does it mean advised or agreed? And the court found in favor of the client who argued it meant advised, and therefore they didn't need to get the agreement of underwriters to the attachment of the vessel. Therefore, the vessel was on risk and covered for the total loss. And okay, it's easy to snort and say that's ridiculous, but just put the bloody G on at the end of the A is the moral of that story. <laughs> Attention to detail, read the slip, read the wording, empower your contracts team, which we do. So, you know, we have Luis Jarvis who joined us from his course, has built an incredible contracts team, all in the office, interacting with underwriters day to day. These people, our actuaries, our claims people, are all revenue producers. That's how I regard all of them. And I tell them that on a regular basis. It's not just the sort of fighter pilot and ground crew analogy that some underwriters like to employ. We're all revenue producers in this company, the legal team too, and the finance team. Everybody is the ops team. We've got an incredible ops team who sometimes pull all-nighters to get us through the month's end close. Incredible people who don't tend to get the accolades and the recognition they deserve. We can't do any of this without all of those functions performing to their best. You know, if you haven't got the modeling done, you haven't done this or that. You can't do Absolutely. Yeah. Talking about revenue, the maiden results, I know Dan's not here, Dan Burrows is not here, representing the balance sheet, but really good numbers. In general, reflective of very good market conditions. How long do you think they can carry on for, Richard? Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. I think the language employed at events like this in Monte Carlo around the cycle are looking rather sepia-tinted now. I, unlike a lot of my fellow CEOs, am not afraid to use the word climate change. In fact, I use it all the time. Just look what's happening around us. Well, yeah, I mean, I flew down from London. It was 32 degrees in London. It was 25 degrees in Monaco. I didn't really understand. Yeah. It's not supposed to be like that. Well, a couple of things just in the last week. One of the aggregators in the press, I forget what they're called, sent around the sort of accumulation just of the last week's cat losses, and it was flooding in Spain. It was terrible flooding in Greece, I think flooding in Portugal. Obviously, we've had the terrible earthquake now in, in Marrakesh. I was looking at that this morning. There's events all over the world all the time. And yes, they're probably not hitting reinsurers' radar screens, but they're still being paid for by insurance companies, albeit we're doing a very poor job of protecting people like the people of Morocco against incidents like the Marrakesh earthquake. And we can talk about that if you want. But the traditional cycle where you had what we used to call clean years, where you could all take a breather, repair your balance sheets, raise fresh capital if you needed to, have gone. There's no such thing as a clean year anymore. V-Risk said that you know $133 billion is an average cat load now. That's obviously going up all the time. So this is the market we're in now. And I don't think traditional talk of cycles where cat rates seesawed year to year is the reality anymore. I mean, obviously, they won't go up every year forever, but I think there is no doubt they are on an upwards trend for the foreseeable future. And do you think 
statistically having this standard, the sort of base level is now being raised quite markedly and seems to be raising every year. Has that affected what your view of peak cat might be? Absolutely it has. And we buy reinsurance accordingly and we tailor our lines accordingly on our attachment points. So just ask yourself a question. So Hurricane Ian last year, heading towards the Florida coast, had Ian not done the kind of last minute right turn yep. and headed into Fort Myers yes. and carried on into Tampa as a Cat 4-5, you're probably looking at $150 billion loss. Last week when Dahlia was coming in, there was, I would say, petrification in the industry for 48 hours while people looked at that storm and thought, is that going to go into Tampa and are we going to still be in business? So what a ridiculous way to run an industry. Every year, a large number of both rated companies and ILS companies are running the risk of ruin if the storm turns the wrong way. You talk to people outside our industry, they think that's utterly absurd. One of the great things we've done in response to climate change, and in, you know, obviously hand in hand with the insurance group with the balance sheet led by Danny, is to diversify and to de-risk. So yes, we're still very significant players in the treaty cat world, and even more so in the DNF world, but we brought our risk levels down enormously. And we now write 87 lines of business, and we are able to come into what is perhaps still anachronistically called hurricane season. I think the season seems to be almost year round now. Pretty sanguine. I won't say relaxed because that's a horrible word to use because people die, but sanguine about our company's prospects because our risk levels are far lower than peers. And to me, if you're running heavy on cat risk these days, you've got a lot of explaining to do. And frankly, you're probably running the annual risk of ruin, which is absurd. Obviously, much better paid than we were this time last year for this risk and two years ago. Is it an adequate price? I think we felt the 1 123 renewal season was satisfactory. For us, we worked with our brokers and clients and a lot of the contracts we wrote were named perils only. We have a big line to deploy where we like the clients. We obviously gravitate towards better capitalized, better known, more robust companies who have their own loss adjusters, who have the ability to withstand a loss or a succession of losses without going under, if you like. And we were happy with the deals that we did. But there's clearly more work to be done because the pace of climate change is relentless. From looking at those results, which were excellent, by the way, it looked like you hadn't lent into reinsurance as much as perhaps some of your peers. And sometimes it's masked because it might mean you'd shifted from proportionals to excessive loss or whatever. But it looks like you hadn't. So one, tell me whether you did or didn't really lean into it as much. It was, you know, you raised a bit of capital, 100 million, which is, I mean, there's a lot of money, obviously, but these days that's not a lot of money. It's not going to tip any dial anywhere or, or tip any balances, is it? Agreed, Markle. I would just observe there is no money getting raised <laughs> at all in the cat space these days, so 100 million is not to be sniffed at. Yeah, but are you actually looking for it, though? No. So suppose maybe there is. If you're not looking, you won't find it. All I would say to you, and I speak to investors and bankers and rating agencies all the time, and it seems to me that trifecta are the people you speak to to find out if there's any money getting raised. And it's a big fat no. There's stuff being talked about, but the rating agencies don't have any compelling deals on their desks. Interestingly, they've told us that whereas in the past, often they had a lot of capital swirling around looking for credible management teams, now there are credible management teams in Venice. You know, you've seen some major industry names associated with various ventures recently, but there's no capital. So it's a sort of inversion of that traditional dynamic. But no, we are not leaning into reinsurance. We take the view that climate change is inexorable and remorseless, and we have to continue to reflect that in our view of risk every year. We already have basically disregarded the vendor models. 
RMS and AI are, are no longer credible in our view. I'll go back to Jeff Masters, the sort of guru of North American weather. He did some work for us and he just looked at these models and he said, well, it's 20th century modeling for 21st century weather. That's where we are. So we've developed our own view of risk, which in North America was 83% above the vendor models on average. And I think something like 55% worldwide. When you average that out, it's far more penal in areas like Florida, the Gulf, Australasia, and less so in places like the Northeast and parts of continental Europe. But nevertheless, that's the average. And actually, I've just said to my guys, we now need to go again, because that was a couple of years ago that we developed that view of risk. Time to do it again. You can't stand still. So I think to your point about capital raising, if we wanted to, I think at least we'd have something to say. We could go into an investor and say, we disregard these models. They're ridiculous. Here's our view of risk. Test us on it. See if you think it's credible. And if you like it, we can still command pricing in the market, which will give us a good margin on top of those modeled outcomes. So I think we could possibly raise some if we wanted to. I think if you're going out there with unloaded AI or RMS, you have a snowball's chance in hell. Nobody's interested. The insurance industry might be in denial about climate change, but the investment community sure as hell isn't. And that is the thing they talk about all the time. So you have this extraordinary disconnect where the investment community is question one, number one, what do you do about climate change? Welcome to the insurance industry where there's this... <laughs> You know, I would call it omerta, if you know the Sicilian term, this collective omerta yes. about climate change. Let's not talk about it and let's hope nobody's going to ask it. Ridiculous. And that's why we've seen this complete juddering halt to any new capital coming. Long may that continue. There are more and more companies who are, perhaps in some cases, it's ideological. They feel it's a politically loaded term. I mean, that's just bloody ridiculous. It's happening. Let's all try and acknowledge reality and do something about it. More and more companies, I would say, are crossing the fence and saying, we need to talk about this. We need to de-risk. We need to write less CAD. So I think macro picture, Mark, increased demand from clients. That's clear. The supply, a few people may, quote unquote, lean in, but I think more will lean out. So <laughs> I don't think it's going to be huge rises at 1-1, but I think the momentum will continue. There's still plenty of demand anyway. Plenty of demand. ILS has many, many problems these days. They were really geared around the clean year model where they could repair capital for a year or two and then go again. They don't get to do that now. Every year they have capital trapped, and it's a kind of accumulating issue for them year on year. I was at a conference, and one of the luminaries of that market was saying we're still on the collateralized reinsurance retro, about 20% of that capital is still trapped. So they might be having a record year for issuance, but it's not really all there necessarily. Well, agreed. But let's also, what are we today? September the 10th? Let's also not make the mistake of thinking... We're done this year. No. <laughs> I saw a statistic last week saying that historically 98% of insured losses due to Atlantic hurricanes occur after the 20th of August. Just think about that for a minute. That's two and a half weeks ago. Think about climate change. Think how hot the seas are. Think how hot the weather is, how volatile the weather is. When does wind season go until this year? End of November? We could have a Christmas Day hurricane easily. We've, yeah, exactly. And so it could be three more months of hurricanes. And okay. And people are talking as if the year's kind of in the books, and now let's think about next year. Again, perhaps this conference should be held in early December. But it's interesting, actually, think about it, Mark. It's an anomaly, isn't it? Because almost the timing of the rendezvous is a pre-climate change thing. You come here thinking, well, that's the bulk of wind season done now. We may get a bit unlucky. Something may happen in mid-September. Not anymore. Not anymore. Be interesting talking about that hypothetical idea. If you come in with this for Dennis, let's say it's about twice what everyone else's the sort of undiluted price is. You know, your concentrated price is more like twice as much. And you said, well, if we we could raise capital 
promising that kind of return hurdle, that kind of pricing that we would only write at that kind of price. Do you think you would be able to raise money? And then if you did raise money, would you be able to deploy it? Would the market let you deploy it at your price? That's a good question. It's probably another way of letting you sort of illustrate what you really feel about where the market is. My sense is the market is very verticalized right now. If you are prepared to offer certainty of cover, even if you are restricting the perils, you prepare to offer a large line, you're prepared to trade on a confidential basis without gabbling to the rest of the market about it, that's very attractive to clients. We write very little business these days that's kind of what you might call subscription market business, where there's a leader and everybody's sticking down their 10, 5 and 10%. You've got your deal and that's Lock it. of capacity, line to stand in full, totally confidential. My sense is there's plenty of room for those sort of deals. Of course, it would be the insurance group raising the capital, not us, although we would be absolutely helping them in that with our narrative, if you like, from the shop floor. I mean, never say never, Mark. I mean, my sense is we're much more likely than not to have another really big event this year. If that happens, I think the industry is in a world of pain. If V-Risk think it's $133 billion of losses this year, I don't think they're factoring in another really big event this year. So we're probably well north of $150 billion. Just think about that for a minute. It was it 2012 to 2016, 50 billion-ish of losses. Ever since then, it's been at least $100 billion a year, and it goes up every year. So now we're talking about $150 billion. These are vast amounts of money we're throwing around. In that scenario, yes, we probably would speak to Danny and think about whether we wanted to raise more capital. But it wouldn't be on a huge scale. Our transition as a business, as a combined group, we are, of course, at the MGU, but the shared direction of travel for both us and the insurance group is towards a very diversified business where we're not sweating every time the wind blows or the earth shakes. And we're in that space now, which is a great place to be. Yes, to go back to that point about the ILS, I mean, there's some loss you said that it was shut, that that market shut. It's having a record year for issuance. Do you think it's shut? Is it still sort of shut or not? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. It's very important to distinguish when you talk about ILS. Because, you you know, this is a market that you interact with, that you buy from. Yeah, we do. It's very important you talk about ILS to distinguish between the kind of down and dirty, 30 online, 20 online retro market ILS. And I stand by what I said last year. It's really not there anymore. And by the way, we have budgeted, I've said to my guys, assume when we do the business planning for next year, that no retro is available down at that one in five, one in 10, one in 15 return period at prices we want to pay. So let's assume there's nothing there. We have quota share partners who we love and they love us and we've made them returns way above the market now for sort of seven or eight years running through our differentiated approach to CAT. And we very much want to burnish those relationships long may they continue. But buying XOL retro at 25 online from ILS markets is not really a thing anymore. But the other part of ILS, of course, is the cap bond market. The press conflate the two with respect. I'm sure you don't, but people do. And they talk about them as if they're the same. So you've got the down and dirty market, which I stand by what I said last year. It's pretty much gone. Then you've got the cap bond market, which is attaching way further up. Yeah. And that is, I wouldn't say thriving, but it's, it's doing, doing fine. fine. And it's liquid as well. Again, I it's think been, so the pension funds have had their own sort of wobbles uh, you know, caused by the UK Chancellor in the, in the last autumn. Uh, and they've reminded themselves that need to be, some things need to be more, more liquid than they thought they were going to be. Yeah. Kamikwazi economics, Certainly exactly. The, yeah, and that's obviously, they, you can be in and out of a cap bond. Okay, there's quite yeah. a high spread to pay to do that, but at least you can sell Absolutely. it. Absolutely. We've been buying multi-year bonds for a while now, and we will continue to do so. So you're not going to describe yourself as a reinsurer, really. You're a specialty insurance company. If I've had to think of you know, a short prefix to describe what Fidelis is, you're specialty insurance specialist. 
this time last year, obviously in that post-Ukraine war, Russian invasion of Ukraine environment, you were talking about that being sort of top of the list of things you wanted to change at 1-1. The unbundling of everything that had been bundled within the sort of war and everything marine and war and everything covers. Did that happen? It happened, yes, to a large extent it did happen. So I think all the rub exclusion came in, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus exclusion came in across specialty treaties at 1-1. That created some quite urgent issues for some of our clients and brokers, not least in Japan, where the Sakhalin Island LNG shipments to Japan all needed war insurance for the vessels and the cargoes. And under the terms of the rub exclusion, they were suddenly excluded at 1-1 because, of course, Sakhalin Island is in Russia. And so we were very proud and happy to step forward for our major Japanese clients and provide a solution to that. And it did involve us stepping outside of what our reinsurers would allow us to do. One of the things I'm very critical of in our industry is increasingly people are just, they will only do what their reinsurers tell them they can do. So this is proper netline stuff? Yes, it is netline, but it's a very educated netline approach. So if you look at geopolitics, and I think I pride myself and I pride my team on and it's partly because we write a big political risk book. It's partly because I've been a current affairs junkie since my big brother was testing me on world capitals at the age of about five. I've been extremely interested in ever since. And I think we have a well-developed geopolitical view. We don't just rely on sort of the UK, US kind of Anglo-Saxon view of the world. We tap into information sources in what is now an increasingly multipolar world to get to our view of risk. So, for example, I thought that the BRICS summit in Johannesburg couple of weeks ago, it's fascinating that they brought in six new members. So Saudi, Iran, UAE, Ethiopia, Argentina, and Iran. They don't need to be lectured by the G7 they leaders anymore, do they? absolutely don't. Voila, thank you, Mark. This is not a unipolar world where we all do what the Americans say anymore. This is a multipolar world. That's 34, 36% of global GDP right there in what you might call the BRICS plus countries. And obviously it's growing much faster than the rest of it. Yes. And next year, apparently they're going to admit Indonesia and Nigeria. So two more huge economies joining. This is the multipolar world. And we're incredibly respectful of our US business base. But we also have to operate in other parts of the world. And I think because we have this multipolar approach, we were able to look at that Sakhalin Island situation in Japan and ask ourselves, obviously there's risk, but is it risk we're happy to take? Yes. Why would the Russians interfere with a very lucrative trade, which is Japanese vessels sailing into Sakhalin, loading up with LNG, then going to Japan? It's a short hop, as you can see on the map. Equally, why would Japan mess with it? It's 9% of Japan's energy needs come from the Sakhalin LNG trade. And there was speculation in December that the lights might be going out in Tokyo in January if they couldn't solve this insurance problem. So we were really proud to say, okay, our reinsurers won't come with us on this. Some would, some wouldn't, but we were prepared to take at least partially a net line, looking at the actual risk, rather than just simply being a prisoner of what our reinsurers would allow us to do. Because it's not in anyone's interest for those ships to be torpedoed. Who gains? No, no, no one. Exactly. It sounds like a good right. A very good right, but simultaneously made our clients very happy and has cemented our relationships. And, you know, we take our Japanese relationships very, very seriously. We're off again in November to do more work there. And I think they've seen that when they really needed us, we were there. And we weren't just hiding behind our reinsurance skirts. We were happy to step forward and old-fashioned, look at the risk, charge a price, do a deal. Looking forward to this one, one, what are on your sort of absolutely red line, I'm demanding that this change? And then going down from that, what are the sort of okay things I would like to see change? I think 
and I've been saying this, by the way, for 30 years, that the problem with the so-called subscription market is that brokers, particularly certain brokers, treat everybody the same, regardless of what you bring to the party. So what do we bring to the party? We are either the leader or an agreement party on over 90% of our business. Right through COVID, and particularly since COVID, we travel all over the place. Our head of marine is in China at the moment. He says to me that there's been no London underwriter that he can find out who's been to Shanghai to talk about deals and some new building risk deals and some new sailing fleets since before COVID. So that whole thing, I mean, I grew up getting on planes every other week, literally. I was all over the world. My kids say, my God, have you been to every single country in the world, Dad? Well, I've been to over 100. Yeah, Probably the majority of that was business travel, was going to places where you wouldn't perhaps naturally go on a family holiday to help further the brand of the London market. And yes, my personal brand, but to the broader benefit of the market. Because once that business comes in, others will benefit because we can't write it all 100%. But my beef is that certain brokers, less and less, I would say, treat you the same as somebody who perhaps sits on a small box in Lloyd's, writing a 0.5% line at the end of the risk, doesn't do any travel, isn't an agreement party, doesn't get involved in the policy wording, doesn't get involved in contentious claims, just sits there as a follower. So you ask me things I'm non-negotiable about is we must be treated with respect by brokers when it comes to signings. Our friends at Berkshire would never contemplate being signed down on a risk. And in many ways, I applaud that and respect it. Perhaps we're not quite as binary as that. There will be occasions where there'll be good reasons why we sign down a bid, but sign down to 50% or 30%, forget it. Yeah. When we've done all that work, we put all that shoe leather in and done all that hard graft to bring the business to the London market. So I think participation on risks is key. I think when we look at our outwards relationships where we have discrete distribution, which we do, for example, on our ECAP mortgage SRT book, we often transact direct or with, for example, continental European brokers who simply don't do business with the Lloyds or the London market apart from us. There, perhaps we need to have conversations around fees or their outwards partners. But the one thing I'm really non-negotiable about is get into the office and do your job. And that's to all my colleagues. We are a person-to-person business. We need to be in the office. I lead by example. I'm there all the time. I'm in early. I leave late. That's who we are. It's not for everybody. We are a bit Marmite. But I think those who get religion and get the fidelis way realize there's no place they'll have a better career. There's no place they'll get a more exciting cross-class experience. There's no company where they'll get more access to the C-suite and ultimately to me on a day-to-day basis. And there's no way where they'll make more money because the beauty of the MGU structure is we are an EBITDA multiple company. Our EBITDA is very, very healthy. And the multiple we think that should be applied to us as a highly diversified business, not as a monolined cat MGA, for example, 87 lines of business, most of them not exposed to natural perils. We think when the time comes to refinance this business, the multiple of EBITDA that it trades at should be sky high. And that's what we're driving towards. And everybody gets it. I have fantastic colleagues. We have really no pushback at all on these things, by the way. But those are the things that are really kind of non-negotiable for me. Quick abbreviation, ECAT, SRT. ECAT, Economic CAT, and SRT, Strategic Risk Transfer, or Significant what? Risk Transfer. Yes, and what are those? Well, it, they take all different forms. But basically, more often than not, these deals are crafted to obtain regulatory capital relief, yeah. rather than, if you like, a traditional risk where you pay a dollar in premium and you expect to get back 60 cents in claims. That's not what they're about. They're about deal facilitation and regulatory capital relief. Thank you very much for that. And where are you most excited? It's great you've been able to spend the time this year 
line by line, looking at everything. Where are you happiest? I'm happiest sitting at my desk talking to my fantastic underwriting. No, but any of those lines are you thinking, great, this is going to double the budget. Well, it's far better than I expected. I'm not going to ask you to give all your trade secrets, but if you can point me in the general direction of where things are good. I think the way I'd answer that question is we live in a world where the pace of events is quite bewildering. And we sit here now in early September in Monte Carlo. Who knows what's going to happen in the world? What excites me is with our incredibly fluid structure, yeah, we've sold backups, for example, when nobody else is even picking up the phone. And I, I can't tell you who the seedants are because I would obviously breach confidentiality, but sometimes there's a big event in a European country and a, one of the dominant local seasons needs to buy cover and it's August and nobody else appears to be at work and we do the backup 100%. So what I can guarantee is stuff's going to happen and we are going to be uniquely well positioned to respond to it. And that's what excites me, Mark, is we've set up a uniquely flexible client-facing structure at Fidelis, where we are the first responders. We are significant responders in terms of line size. We are price makers, not price takers across our portfolio. That excites me because we're just ready for whatever the world throws at us. We've de-risked so much now on CAD that we're not now sweating over whether the wind blows or the earth shakes or increasing the rain falls torrentially. I mean, this, this rain globally is really quite terrifying. It started with band and now we're just seeing it all the time all over the world. Well, the ground's so hard all the time, it can't absorb any water. I mean, it? Even in recent days, I mean, you know, look at the flooding in Japan from a relatively small typhoon, unbelievable rain in the east of Japan. So that's the best way I can answer it without giving away trade secrets is we're kind of like a boxer. We're on our haunches. We're ready for whatever gets thrown at us. Do you like it when people say opportunistic or not? I don't think that's a bogey word for me. I don't think there's anything wrong with being opportunistic, but... That means you, can be, you have to be in and out and then... Yeah, I mean, let's be clear here. Our main lines of business we are committed to for the foreseeable future. There's no line of business we write that I would foresee us pulling out of in the foreseeable future at all. No, absolutely not. That doesn't mean on top of that, you can't build this sort of opportunistic portion of what you do and just be highly responsive. Of course, now you've got the time. This is something else we were talking about, the intellectual property cover that you were excited about, which sounds absolutely fascinating. What other sort of things, now you've got a bit more time, what are you working on on the new product side? Well, we're going to have another look at cyber. Cyber's always scared me because... Yeah, well, it should scare you. It's scary. It scares me. And the reason it scares me is I've never met a cyber underwriter who can explain to me how he or she aggregates their exposures or prices of business. So on first principles, that scares the bejesus out of me. Having said that, it is an increasingly huge are you market. you starting to meet some of those people who are starting to convince you? Can it well, take look, you I, mean, I think what's becoming better known in the market now is that we are able to offer people cells in our Pine Walk division, our third-party capital division, which are highly attractive from both a financial standpoint and a sort of day-to-day quality of life standpoint. So obviously, Clive Washburn is a huge example of that. Yeah, because I've had him on the show a couple of times. And he was even happier the second time I had him on the first time. No, it's a brilliant partnership. A lot of people thought we'd have all sorts of fights that we'd never be able to get on. I, I, I think it's three years now. We've had the odd spat, nothing to really move the dial. We are now combined with Fidelis, the biggest marine insurer in the world, excluding liabilities. That's incredible. And yes, the economics are great. And Clive and his team have a big equity stake. And they will do incredibly well financially, are doing incredibly well financially. But above all, as I think I may have said to you last year, Clive gets to walk down Lime Street in the morning with a spring in his step, knowing that instead of spending all his day in compliance meetings, he's going to be sitting at his desk, at his box, if you like, in our Lime Street office dealing with brokers. And I think, don't forget, we're only nine months in to the bifurcation 
actually eight months, sorry. It's hard to believe sometimes. It feels like we've been doing this for five years. And I got asked a lot in the early months of this year, are you a magnet for talent? And I had to be a little bit measured in my answer because our phones didn't start ringing in January and February, but they're sure as hell ringing now. People are thinking, my God, I can go in there. I'll get a working capital loan from the mothership. I will get X percent of the equity, which I can spread amongst my core team. I will have high quality capital, high quality permanent capital or semi-permanent. It's 10-year capital from the IG. And as I always remind my colleagues in the MGU... You don't have to worry about some of these collateralized um, exotica. (laughs) Exactly. And, And, you know, as I always remind my colleagues, we are so privileged to have Danny and his guys showing that faith in us to give us 10 year plus paper. And that's very persuasive to people now because they're looking around at the market where people have annual paper, the annual paper falls over, the guys are left in limbo, and we offer a very, very permanent, semi-permanent home for these guys. And within that, Pine could you have more than one of the same or is it sort of Noah's Ark? They walk in two by two, but once you've got the elephants, that's it. That's a great question. (laughs) So I said to my CFO, I said, As we become bigger and bigger, our gross premium will approach $4 billion this year, be a lot more than that next year. As I keep saying, 87 lines of business. If you're looking for something with no clash at all, you're looking for a unicorn. There's always going to be some clash. It's how we manage it. Now, you look at Navium, how we've managed the marine clash. Again, combined the biggest marine insurer in the world, both in our own right, very, very big. We, through excellent management information that flows both ways, and again, real time in the office, go over, they're five minutes away, pick up the phone, better still go and see them, have a coffee. That's the best way to ensure you don't have a load of cock-ups. Again, if you're all in your living rooms in Clapham, does that work? Not really. But if you've got a marine risk, you know, why wouldn't you want to talk to Clive Washburn about it? Pretty handy second opinion anyway, isn't it? (laughs) Incredible validation. I mean, not all brokers love us both equally, and that's natural. So you can play to those strengths. But I'd like to think most brokers love us both, although they probably find us a bit painful sometimes. But the answer to your question is, There's some overlap, but when we're looking for new opportunities, we're not just going to do a Me Too and have two different aviation cells in Pine Walk competing with each other. That makes no sense. Yeah, because then the brokers won't know which one. Which one's your favourite one? Well, exactly. No, no, don't ask me that. That doesn't work. So it sounds like if the world's best cyber team came and spoke to you, you'd be quite keen to have a meeting with them. Understand how they aggregate, how do they price, how do they think about systemic risk, but... If they can give good answers to those questions, absolutely. You said earlier, you're one of the only insurers in the world who actually properly talks about climate change and really means it, and you're committed to, you've got your own net zero commitments. It's been a shame that the Net Zero Insurance Alliance has effectively collapsed under attack. It's probably mostly political attack. Where do we go from here? What can we do together that won't lead us open to accusations of collusion? I think it's very difficult to do things as a collective because you just open yourself up to legal do we, Does that then mean we have to leave it to the regulator to tell us what to do? Which we probably don't want to. We probably I think rather you not ultimately do. leave it up to capital. There's more and more capital out there with a very strong ESG mandate. If you go out to raise capital these days with nothing to say about climate change, you are closing off a vast amount of the potential available capital because if you can't talk to them credibly about it, they're not interested. I think, as ever, in any economy, it's the economy stupid, as somebody once said. And the real politic, do you think, obviously, we've got a certain number of US states with quite, seems to be pretty political, attorneys general, etc., who probably on the climate change denial side of things. But then if those states end up with no insurance market, then I suppose in the end, it's just real politics will catch up with them and say, well, we've got to listen to these people, unless they want nationalised insurance in their state. Yes. 
And that's not feasible for any number no, of reasons. And there's also, yeah, that's not in their playbook either, is it? At the end of the day, market forces will determine all of these things. I would just say that I think there's perhaps a slightly casual depiction of all the sort of red states as being in total denial about climate change. I don't think that's the reality. Well, I speak to people all across America from all political persuasions. It's such a polarised time, it's very difficult to actually I know. see where the grey is, because there's a lot more grey, I'm sure. There's a lot more grey. And Mark, <laughs> just look at the bloody weather. I mean, people aren't stupid. If you're sitting in Nevada, Nevada's probably a purple state, but you look in Nevada and Las Vegas is... It was about 14 years ago. There's a really good Jeffrey Mary in the Willis Building doing his fantastic speeches, really rabble-rousing speech. And he said, I don't know about climate change, but just look at the weather. That's yeah. weird. You well, know. There you go. And that was go. 14 years ago. People yeah. aren't stupid, and the weather is becoming so scary and so unpredictable, <laughs> and the scientific consensus is so strong that I actually think that there's a gathering consensus and that capital will ultimately drive all of this. Could we reassemble something, at least on things like the sort of standards of measurement, obviously, that are going to be fantastically important for all of us as we trade, as you onboard risk in insurance and offboard it into reinsurance and retro, we need to have a way of measuring at least what is that carbon footprint that we are transferring or whatever it is to say, where is it? How much carbon is in there and how are we going to get it to net zero by 2050? Yeah. That we have to have a kind of, you know, like we had a JPEG so that we could send each other digital images. Without that, we're all incompatible with each other. Do we need some sort of JPEG of carbon so that as you write a facultative risk, you write your 10% line, whatever it is, and you bring that in, then you can put that into your treaty and you can send that off somewhere else? It's an interesting question. I guess, will modelling agencies develop or will the existing modelling agencies develop that capability? Again, you run into antitrust issues. It's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, but I think you mentioned 2050. I think you have to have, and you'll have seen our published climate goals now, and you know other companies have done it, AXA did it too, good luck to them. NZI was not going to survive the political attack. Do you think we should have fought them? Because it's had a pretty good case. It's just too much of a distraction, such a waste of time. I think it's very hard to argue that if you have a group of companies coming together, talking about metrics, which are clearly a proxy for pricing, that that is not, at least on some level, a collusion around pricing. I think that's a tough one to argue. And we certainly have neither the appetite nor, frankly, the time. So I suppose we, we need someone to, to come in and then we can all adopt it. Someone, you know, some, um, an RMS of this to come in or something. Yes, exactly right. I think there needs so to be... So it's a, a good business opportunity for a third party. It's incredible. I mean, an incredible gap, because I don't mean to keep naming these agencies, but they are who they are. They have nothing relevant to say about it. And we probably do need an industry standard where none of us own, none of us can be colluding in, but nevertheless provide some sort of benchmarking. But in the meantime, Mark, the key thing is you can't just talk about 2050. You've got to talk about 2025, 2027, 2030. And we've done that. But I would also say that we've had some amazing collaboration. We're just about to hire a chief transition officer who will be working alongside Olivia, who heads up RESG, to work with our clients. Now, listen, there are some clients, and I've always said this, in fact, I think I've said to you before, there is a hardcore of clients who just won't talk to you about it. And in fact, we've had a couple just recently where we just can't get along with them because they're actually quite aggressive. And they say, you know, you can't talk about this stuff. It's all political. You don't know what you're Can talking they, about. Therefore, they can't be clients anymore. Well, they can't, I'm afraid. And then there's an increasing band of really good actors. And we've done some wonderful deals working with multilats around swapping debt for green investment deals. They've been in the public domain, you know, Belize, Gabon. We've done a number of them recently. Really great deals. And I want to talk about the SAFRA in a minute too, the, the vessel off Yemen. 
And so we have an increasing cadre of clients who are really, really focused on the green transition. But then we have a lot in the middle who just, frankly, want to have a conversation and they want some guidance and they're not unreasonable people. They can't change overnight. And our job is to help them on the transition. But it can't be a 25-year transition. It's got to be something that we can measure annually. And it has to, we have to, be able to, we have make to start making steps every day. Yeah. Meaningful progress, which I think is fine. But if I may, just talking about trying to do our bit to help the world, we were so proud to be the co-leader on the SAFA package. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Yes, yes. They've got all the oil off the vessel now. They've scrubbed all the tanks out. She's safe now. We're so proud to be associated with that. Because if you think about that vessel, she had over a million barrels of crude on board. Had she ruptured or breached, think about the countries that would have been affected, you know, places like Eritrea, Somalia, Yemen itself, some of the poorest countries in the world where we do such a bad job of providing insurance cover. And that loss would have been entirely net. It would have destroyed livelihoods, killed lots of people, led to God knows what health problems for generations. And we're very proud, not just of us, but the brokers who work for the Nil Commission and all our co-ventures on the slip and our co-leaders, which was Axa XL, to come together and do that deal. We're very proud and delighted that it's gone as well as it's gone. And again, when you have, I would say, young we can get a bit more cynical as we get older. I try really hard not to, and I like to think I'm not cynical for a guard my age, and I still have you know, lots of energy and idealism. I am proud of that. But nevertheless, it is sometimes hard to hold on to the idealism of youth. We do have a lot of very young colleagues, and I know from the feeling on the shop floor that people were really excited and proud to be associated with that. And I'm sure they went and told their partners and friends and families about it, and that's all good too. And it was very nice to have the insurance industry producing front page news in a positive light yeah. for once. Yep. And good luck to Howden's as the brokers who work for the commission. It was a great collaboration all around. It's not over, by the way, but you would hope the trickiest parts are done now. One other thing on my list of questions I wanted to ask you about, obviously, we've got these disputes over that arose with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've had a little bit of movement on some of these. Are we close to resolution there? Well, obviously, I'm going to be very careful what I say. No, exactly. I know. Um, yes. But within that, if you're well, a bit more optimistic, it might be. Well, yes. I mean, of course, it was great news last week. And of course, it's not the end of the story. Of course, air captain cells will look to do more deals with the other Russian airlines. Of course, they will. And of course, lots of other lessors are looking at and figuring out you know, their deals. And, and many of them are, in, as you can imagine, in a very advanced stage of negotiation. So I think you can expect to see plenty more news between now and the end of the year. But of course, it's great news. Is there anything else you want to talk about? We've had a fantastic conversation, Richard. I don't think so, Mark. You've really covered all the bases. I mean, I think I've got across all the points I wanted to make. Very excited by the bifurcation. Very interested to see whether others try and follow us. I know anecdotally from bankers, lots of people are talking about it, but it's not easy to do. We worked, and I'm back to my point about hard work, being in the office, all of that Would stuff. Would have been easier to do it as a startup, I suppose? Probably much. Probably <laughs> much easier. You know, we worked our backsides off for... But I suppose then you've got a track record that people can trust and say, well... That's true. I mean, but basically, you've got to have a long-term combined ratio, which when you add on the commissions that you charge to your capacity provider is still well under 100%. If you can't do that, then obviously it doesn't work. So anybody, even if you've got a really good long track record with a 90% combined, that doesn't work because there's no room, including the fees, for your capital provider to make any money. So it's not easy to copy, but I'm sure others are, are going to try. Well, good luck to them all. But Indeed. No, certainly, and thanks for your time. Actually, I think you visibly are more energetic and more positive, if that was actually possible, than this time last year, but I think obviously you were still in the weeds of all 
you know, signing off on all sorts of complicated oh God, yeah. things. I mean, this time last year, we were still very, like, it is liberating, Mark, and, and I really enjoy going to work. Governance structures and things, and they're all, they're interesting academically, not but they're not in, not in reality. Not my fault, that's for sure. Thank you so much, Richard. I okay. really enjoyed it. Have Mark. a great Monte Carlo. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>